What's up? Welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Dr. Seth Williams. So here's another episode that I really wish I had done while I was in veterinary school. I am super pumped to welcome on to the podcast today my guest, Chase DeMarco. Chase is in his very, very final stages of training to be a physician. He is also an MBA. He holds a master's degree in educational psychology. And as you can imagine, education is a huge, huge passion of his. So he has done a lot of work on his end through his training in medical school and before and beyond uh, about better ways for us to learn and to keep all of that material in our heads so that we can use it in the future. He is here to share with us a lot of tips and tricks, techniques, and pearls of wisdom for ways that we can be more effective learners, not only in school, but also in practice. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Chase. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Thank you so much for having me on. No, it is my pleasure. I was I was so thrilled when you reached out and you know, to learn a little bit about yourself and, and what you've been doing. And, you know, I think we both agree after talking a little bit before recording this that there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, cross-benefit here and a lot to learn. And it's always really interesting, at least I know from from my friends and myself who have gone through veterinary school or, or who are veterinarians, to always learn about what's happening over on the human side and, and kind of being humbled by the uh, the vast similarities. So so yeah, I'm excited to hear kind of all about what you're doing and your tips for medical students and and uh, I think it's going to very much uh, you know meld over into the veterinary world too. So thank you. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, it's it's a, a very similar aspect that we just have a lot of information and I know I ran across a lot of issues in my studies and a lot of my classmates did too. So that's kind of what started the whole process of investigating, learning how to learn in medicine and the advanced techniques that we could use, but were never taught about, unfortunately. Exactly. Yeah. Well, before we get into the nitty gritty of everything, why don't you just give us a a bit of a background on, you know, what your training has been, you know, passions, background, all that good stuff. All right. Well, to sum up a long, arduous journey, uh, my name is Chase DeMarco, and I am a current, I don't know if you consider a fourth-year, fifth-year medical student at this point, basically completed all of my medical studies and rotations, but I've taken the past year off to really focus on some of the other extracurriculars that I have been uh getting out there for the students, such as the Medical Anemonist podcast, which obviously with a name like that, we're covering medical mnemonics and uh, how some of these things can be used, as well as a lot of evidence-based study techniques. Unfortunately, mnemonics are very, very strong, but we just don't have a lot of evidence for them because they're very personal. So uh, I guess we'll go into that more when we get to that section, but it's very difficult to do studies on what's going on inside someone's head visually. Totally. And because and, I know you've got a uh, quite the, I don't know, I would say it's very unique background in terms of uh, medical student, new physician in terms of you know, your business background, education, passion, things like that, right? Yeah, I had 
Well, I started my master's in educational psychology and finished that up my first semester at med school. So I was really hoping to utilize that information to benefit me in school and maybe even to teach on the side while I was going to school or something like that to supplement uh, the the tuition costs. Uh, that never came through, unfortunately. Even a master's is not really enough to get an online um, education position at most schools. You kind of need the PhD. So I continued on with my PhD during med school and completed all of it except the dissertation. And now that's kind of been put on the back burner. So I might not get the PhD, unfortunately, but then (laughs) then I did achieve an MBA in healthcare administration last year because I also was doing like the podcast and writing this book and doing a lot of online education, online courses, and trying to see how we can really bring some of the, uh, I would say, stronger, newer educational techniques and sciences and, and methods to traditional education that hasn't really adopted it. And I guess now with uh, COVID, some of them are finally starting to. They were forced to do more online and more distance education and these types of things. But that's all in all kind of been my whole goal. And, uh, and that's where the other educational aspects came in and, and kind of also partially led to the materials that I have out now for med students, pre-meds, vet students. A lot of it is very generalizable. Right. Good. Well, excellent. So yeah, let's get let's get into it. Um, I, I thought of one other question. You know, we had talked about a list of things that we were going to talk about, but I figured here's kind of one just off the cuff that I just thought of um, before we get into kind of the your tips and you know, what you've seen be being uh, very successful in um, in a medical school setting. Are there any things that come to the top of your mind in terms of what are the current, I guess, the top current um, flaws of the medical education system? Like what what are some of the big areas that they could really improve on? If I was to sum it up in one word, that would be passive learning. And I actually just had another interview earlier about this on my show that's going to be released in a few weeks. And our entire system really has been focused on passive learning. And this includes lecture-based learning, sitting up at, a, at the front of the you know study hall, the desk, the podium, and, uh, and just lecturing to people, teaching at people, and not actually learning with them or teaching them how to learn. And this has kind of been the assumption for a long time, I think, in multiple realms of education. We just, first, we think that students already have the skills that they need, that they know how to learn. They've reached a graduate degree. They must know the top skills out there by now, obviously. And we've been doing it this way successfully for so long that this must work. But what we're seeing is the evidence doesn't actually show either one of those to be true. And you can force Shocker. your way through. Yeah, exactly. You can force <laughs> a student to learn this way, but it's not the most effective way. You can keep teaching a certain way and get through to people, but that's not going to be the best way to get through to them the greatest number of people or in the most efficient manner. And with a lot of uh, curriculum really trying to condense school down to even like three years instead of four in traditional medical school, we need to teach more effectively and especially with the the quantity evolving as much as it does, we need to implement these more active learning techniques, both in the classroom and what the student can learn and and utilize on their own. Right. No, totally nailed that on the head. Um, And then I guess taking that one step further, what are some of the the biggest challenges facing 
medical students and, and what we'll consider medical, you know, human medical and veterinary medical students in the same same camp here. What are the the some of the big challenges that are facing uh, that cohort on the educational side today? I would say for both the students trying to learn it and also for a lot of instructors trying to teach it is the quantity aspect. That's always been an issue, drinking out of a fire hose and trying to keep up with the updated information is not like it used to be maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Information is rapidly changing all the time. It's hard to keep up with it. And we can often supplement this in the clinical setting with programs like up to date. I'm not sure if there's a, an equivalent or if that's a similar one used in vet medicine uh, for MDs and DOs up to dates, kind of one of the most popular updated quickly uh, softwares that you go to, to, to find out what the most evidence-based documentation says about a particular disease. It's a great repository of information, but when you're teaching, we can't really utilize that for trying to decipher information that that's for once you're already you have your degree you already have a lot of the foundational knowledge and even advanced knowledge so trying to keep up with the information from a teacher side is very difficult but also the the quantity and quality of the time spent on the student side whether they're at home learning or whether they're in the classroom trying to learn from this lecture from these powerpoint presentations there's just a huge disconnect here and, and that makes our learning very inefficient and very time consuming. And I'm sure it leads to a host of other things like burnout and everything else you hear that's right. negative. Right. Absolutely. Do you think that the the whole passive learning concept at one point was successful? I mean, this kind of goes to the like chicken or the egg question. Why did it become so popular? And why is it the accepted norm now if we know and I think most people know, even if they don't want to admit it, that it's not the most effective way to learn. Why is it still around? Was it ever effective? My sort of assumptions here, based on limited historic knowledge of of the whole medical education system, was you know once upon a time we studied with a, a journeyman apprenticeship type of model, where one or two individuals would follow the physician at the time and learn the skill that way, and then. I don't recall the dates. This is not something I've studied a whole lot, but then the the French schools were the first ones that actually started putting large groups of students into classrooms, trying to teach them all the same thing at the same time with a more standardized, rigorous methodology. So I suppose from a historic view, it was needed because prior to that, everyone was doing their own thing. There's no standardization. There's no way to really see if this was working, if that was working. There's no scientific method being utilized really for uh, for medicine, for treatment of patients. So the need probably came out of a necessity, but we've been doing it that way for several hundred years now. And the technology has changed. Our understanding of learning has changed. Our environment, the rigors of uh, scientific research have changed. And as much as we can keep using it for basic information, and I'm not saying we have to completely abolish it, but if we want to be adaptive, if we want to be efficient with our time, if we want our students to learn quickly and become better providers for their patients, whether that be human, animal, anything else out there, they need to be in an environment that's conducive for learning and they have to be taught the actual skills that are going to help them learn, not just assume they know it. Because from, I mean, anecdotally, my experiences, probably 95% of us don't know these. So 
getting into some some more specifics in terms of, you know, tips and tricks and things that you've learned through your your experience and your your years of research on this, more or less. What are some of the techniques that that we can use to set ourselves up for for more success in a world that you know is still going to keep teaching us the way the way they have been? What can we do to to make it better to be more effective? Well, I guess I would come back to learning some of the techniques that we're going to discuss here. And it's kind of is broken down into a few different categories of techniques, some of them being more along the lines of productivity and efficiency, things that we can do at home or in the pre-planning stage before we even start studying. Then there are the actual study techniques that we can implement. And then there are also methods for uh, advancing past what we're probably going to be able to do on our own and Um, self-monitor so that we know where our weak points are. That's definitely not something that's usually discussed in most uh, medical literature or educational material that I'm aware of. And then how to even go beyond that and maybe find a mentor in order to gain more clarity. Sure. Well, let's start with the productivity side. Um, You know, how can we improve our productivity, um, staying focused? and, And I know especially just with everything going on, especially now in, in today's world. So many distractions, so much uh, multitasking. I mean, that's like kind of the millennials MO, I guess, if you will. Um, what can we do to improve our lives on, on that front? Yeah, we're all pretty used to multitasking, I would say, not adept at it, because all the research shows that multitasking is going to impede your efficiency. It's actually going to take longer. Even though you feel like you're doing multiple things within this time frame, you would have done them quicker had you properly planned out and done one thing at a time. And I guess when it comes to your studies, one of the most important things we can do is this sort of pre-planning, this prioritization and organization of materials. And a few tips that I recommend in past episodes and cover in more detail in the book is to utilize a lot of business productivity tips in education. And I found that extremely interesting when I was going through my MBA program. Like, huh, I kind of innately know some of these things, but I didn't have a name for it. I didn't have a method for it that I could really um, utilize in my current studies. So I'm sure everyone has probably heard of the 80-20 rule at some point, Usually it's on any kind of business or productivity information is going to mention that. And that's basically saying that 80% of your success, of your overall outcome is going to come from 20% of the material. And it's hard for a student to find what that material will be. Obviously, for some coursework, this can be done in like a review book. Uh, sometimes the professors do a good job when they're deciphering a several hundred or several thousand page textbook into a couple PowerPoint slides every day for a few days. That's kind of, that's the, the method of focusing the material that they're supposed to do for you. But sometimes they don't do it as well as they should, or it needs to be further clarified. And this is when a student really could utilize some help in doing that. And it's going to change. It's going to be a a different method for approaching this for every type of course that you're doing. And quite often, you know, asking classmates that have already completed the class is going to be one of your best ways of doing that. Or first off, setting your goals. Are you doing this for the upcoming exam in a couple of weeks? Or are you doing this for a larger scale board exam type of deal? Because those are going to have different ultimate goals and potentially different uh, 20% that you need to focus on. 
Um, another one for just everyday stuff that I really love. One of my favorite methods that uh, I've implemented in the past year or so is the Covey, Stephen Covey was the author of the seven habits of highly effective people and all the variations that came from that. And he has this management grid in there. It's a Covey management grid. I think if you Google that, you can see something like this and he splits it up into four quadrants. So on, uh, you could put it vertically or horizontal, but let's say on the, the vertical sides, you have what's important and what's not important. And then the horizontal part of this quadrant, you can put what's urgent and what's not urgent. And kind of to sum, to uh, summate this, summarize it, quadrant one is urgent and important. And often you don't want things to be here. This is our stress factor. This is often when we've procrastinated too much. You know, we don't, don't really want to let things slip here, if at all possible. And then quadrant four is kind of the not urgent, not important quadrant. So those are the things that we just want to ignore. They're very distracting. And this is answering the phone or answering a text right now, checking our emails, all these things that depending on the type of material, we might not want to do at all because it's just inefficient or at least put it off until everything else is done. Um, And then quadrants two and three have the other combinations of important, not urgent. So we do need to do these, but we can put it off till later, but we don't want to let them become important and urgent and slip into that procrastination mode. And then we have the reverse. So by uh, by using this very simple array, this very simple grid, we can really simplify all of our materials for the day can make a separate one for the week. We can make a separate one for the the month, the quarter, the year, and you can make several of these depending on which types of material you want to put in it. Um, I actually don't put it in a quadrant because that's more confusing for me. I put it in just a column array. So the top column being, or the top row of the column being the important and urgent. So I know I have to do these first. And then the second row in the column and third and fourth, et cetera. That way I'm doing things in the order that they need to be done and not necessarily the order I want to do them in. Right, right. So I think in another word, it's, uh, you know, how well can you prioritize everything going on? You know, whether that's in a specific area of your life, like your studies or everything combined. Is that, that Would that make sense? Yeah. You can do it in several different ways. You can do it all together if you want. But also, I think in Eat That Frog, he sort of said to have different ones for... He kind of adapted this for his book. Uh, and he has one for family, one for work, one for education. You could do it that way. You really just need to play around with these. They're tools. They're adaptable. Find what works best for you. And that's what I tell everyone about everything that I teach. There is no the way to do it. Everything is adaptable and you have to find out what what works best for your needs and how many things you have going on in your life. If you you know, have a child through school, it's going to be a, a very different setup than someone that is living alone. Um, it, there are just many differences, individual differences. So individualize it as much as you can, but prioritizing is extremely important and something we often don't do. But uh, I think, I'm not sure if this is a scientifically backed statement or anything like that, but I've heard this a few times mentioned in different productivity materials is something along the lines of 10 minutes in planning saves you 90 minutes in productivity. Right. Right. I've heard that too. Yeah. Very important. Right. And I'd imagine too, you know, just 
through your studies. I know that when I was in school, I was faced with this, that, you know, just like you said about drinking from the fire hose, I felt like almost, it felt like constantly, it probably wasn't in reality, but I felt like, like my days were just consumed with having all of my, my, you know, high priority things falling into that, the quadrant of, of urgent and, uh, uh, stressful, you know, it's just it was just panic mode at that point, just because there was so much to do, there wasn't enough time to, um, to uh, you know, prioritize it for that specific moment of time, and and probably what was happening, at least for, for me, is that probably in the month or however so before everything got into panic mode, I wasn't managing my time adequately or or properly. Um, so, what do you say to students that are in like into the thick of things? They are feeling like that they're drowning. In material, um, they just can't get their self out of that, that, that first, you know, quadrant mode of, gosh, I've got so much weighing down on me, there's no time to do it. Um, you know, where do we go from there? Yeah, it's definitely a place a lot of us find ourselves. And before med school, I thought I had some of the best organizational and prioritization skills out there. I would plan out the next like three or four semesters of courses and all that kind of stuff. But it's a completely different challenge in med school. The quantity of material being thrown at you and the rapidity of it, how quickly you have to take on this new material and remember for the long term is just, it, it's insane and not something that any of us have ever seen before. And, you know, for the most part, might not see after because it's a completely different uh, approach in clinical medicine at that point than, than maybe your coursework is going to be. But I would say once you have selected the number one thing you have to do, just focus on that. Do that until it is done. Put everything else aside. Don't have the materials on your desk to do other things. Don't have your phone or any, uh, if you don't need your computer, turn it off, put your phone in another room, any kind of distractions you can eliminate. And you will be surprised how efficiently you can knock out just that one task. Right. Right. And actually, that leads me right into the next question, which you, you more or less just answered, but I want to go a little bit deeper into it. And it goes into distractions. And I know I am, even today, I mean, I feel like it's even getting worse for me, is that there's always something that's going to catch my eye or, or, or get me off track, um, whether that is my phone um, blowing up or something on the computer that, you know, a little notification comes across the screen or someone's walking down the street even, and you know, oh, squirrel, you know, my eyes go somewhere else. Um, what are your, what are some of your tips on, on that? I mean, and it probably just needs for a lot of us to be put bluntly, like just, like you said, put your phone, lock it up in another room, uh, do something drastic because it's going to help you out so much in the end. Uh, what can we do to, to help with that? Yeah. If, if you're the type of person listening to this and you're saying, ah, yeah, I'm not the best at prioritization. I get distracted sometimes, but not that bad. You might want to find a friend or a sibling or significant other to force you into this. And they'd usually be more than happy to take your phone away and lock you in a room for a little bit. But sometimes we need someone to really show us how to start this off or show us how effective it can be. Just trying it out once or twice with absolutely no distractions, with nothing on, nothing around. And it is surprising just how effective you're going to become. And you might not think it'll be that big of a difference. And obviously there will be, you know, different magnitudes, magnitudes of scale, depending on the material you're working on. But if you can put the phone in the other room, 
you can download different apps and browser extensions that will silence things for a certain amount of time or block you from social media for a certain amount of time. But I find that that's just a whole another thing that I have to set up and I don't want to set that up. So I go completely old school, just put stuff in another room, put on the most, uh, the strongest noise canceling things you can find actually find that the absolute best ear protection, uh, noise canceling material is not noise canceling headphones. It's not little foam earbuds that you put in your, it's actually a cheap 20, $30, uh, gun headset from like the shooting range that blocks out a lot of the noise from guns going off right by your ear. It'll definitely block a lot of the noise in your room. So that works very well. And and getting rid of the electronic distractions is the most difficult, but also the audio, audible ones through that is very effective if you're the type that gets distracted by you know, pretty lights going outside or if you can see flashing headlights or something like that, might want to consider getting uh, stronger blinds, uh, blackout curtains, something like that. You're basically getting as close to sensory deprivation as you're comfortable with and just try that out a few times because it will definitely show some benefit. Sure. Now I'm going to put on my devil's advocate hat real quick and say, well, Chase, my friends need to get hold of me. I can't put my phone in another room. And obviously that's not true, but (laughs) I was just uh, going to say, no, they don't need to get hold of you. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's what some people are thinking in their head right now. Well, well, my friend's going to, my boyfriend's going to text me. My girlfriend's going to call me. You know, I need to pick up the phone. Uh, What am I going to do then? Unless you're on call, no one's life is hanging in the balance, then no, they don't. You can wait a few minutes. And here is uh, another technique that I forgot to mention earlier is the Pomodoro technique, Pomodoro. And that's basically in its traditional form when you set 20 minutes of intense focus on something and then you take a few minutes off. Med students technically or generally will increase that amount of time from 20 minutes to 30, 45, maybe an hour, and then take a 10 minute break and then do another 50 minutes to an hour. So during that period of time that you've dedicated to studying, don't answer anything. If you want to start off with shorter periods of time, and then you could check your phone afterwards if you want to, but then you come back and you start studying without any distractions again. And that can kind of mediate some of the anxiety starting off and try to extend that period of study time uh, a little bit. You don't generally want to go more than 45, 50 minutes in one setting and maximum of two of those settings before you take a longer break, like a half hour. And numbers between those seem to show the best uh, increase in focus without starting to lose it again at the end without being too isolated for too long. And then you still have those breaks where you can check your phone, you can check your emails, you can make sure nothing important has happened. And you'll realize after a couple of these sessions that, well, most likely nothing important has happened. Right, right. Good. Um, What else do you have in terms of uh, techniques? So the two areas that I generally focus on in the podcast is the most evidence-based techniques and then other techniques that don't have as much evidence-based but are still very, very effective. And we can start with the evidence-based ones. A, A lot of students are now aware of just probably not how to use them in the most effective way, and that would be repetition and the spacing effect. Repetition or rehearsal practice, otherwise known as the testing effect, otherwise known as a bunch of things. And these two are generally put together into spaced repetition. So if 
anyone has used a flashcard deck such as Anki, Anki, however you pronounce it, and it has a built-in space repetition system. So when you first enter the flashcards into the deck, and this is a free download, a free software that anyone can use, and there are a lot of decks online that are shared between students, so you don't necessarily have to make your own, although I would strongly suggest it. It's a whole other topic. Then it'll start off questioning you that or giving you that flashcard every day or every other day, depending on how you have set up the spacing. And then the next time it'll be in a few days, next time it'll be in a few weeks, and it spaces out longer and longer and longer. And what science has shown is the longer you can space out a repetition without inducing the forgetting curve, the stronger it will be, uh, that memory will be in the long term upon each repetition. So it's kind of a scientific garbled way of saying you need to use the same or go over the same materials frequently enough that you don't forget them, but spaced out long enough that you're not just remembering sort of the uh, or implementing short-term memory. You're actually activating your long-term memory to recall right. that information. Right. So there are a bunch of different ways to do this, a lot of different recommendations, and there is no perfect way again because people are different and our familiarity with different topics is going to be different. Um, I generally recommend what I call the one one three one one rule. And this means to do it first repetition within a day, within 24 hours. Your second repetition is one day later. Your third repetition is three days later. So that's the one, one, three. And then we have two more ones. And that can be about a week later and then about a month later. And then, you know, every three to six months afterwards until you come across whatever you need to, whether that be a board exam or now you're in clinical practice and you're utilizing it all the time. So you don't really need a flashcard to remind you. And what these, uh, what these skills do, what this technique does is it helps to get rid of the constant need for our brain to get rid of information because it can't process everything all the time. So it gets rid of things that we don't find relevant right now. It focuses on how we need to, uh, focus, uh, to survive, basically. And if you haven't covered material for a couple of weeks or a couple of months because it was a class from last semester, you're not going to remember it, most likely. You don't need to. Your brain doesn't want to. doesn't want to hold on to it. It doesn't see the relevance in it. So we're kind of fighting our own brain's natural abilities and evolution uh, through utilizing space repetition. And there's a lot of different ways to set it up. Uh, I could probably go into like a whole hour talk just on that. But <laughs> some of the other Evidence-based techniques are interleaving. This is where you switch between different materials. So don't study anatomy for three hours straight. Do a half hour of anatomy, a half hour of physiology, half hour of biochemistry or whatever courses you're utilizing at that point. Um, there's dual coding, and that's where you basically add an image to any text-based um, stimuli that you might be getting. Luckily, a lot of Proper textbooks will do this for you. Um, some teachers will add a lot of images in their PowerPoints. So when you have that extra image to go along with the text, it's much stronger. And dual coding actually kind of leads into the other part. So if we consider that first group, and there's a few other that fit in there as the strongest evidence-based techniques out there, then the other topic that I generally cover, especially with the name like the Medical Mnemonist podcast, are mnemonics. 
And uh, dual coding is, at least from my understanding, is kind of a part of it, but a small part of it. You're using creativity to create visual associations between material, whether that be definitions, concepts, uh, whatever it might be, even procedures, and creating weird and uh, more memorable visual scenes that you can you can use in a, a couple of different techniques to store them long term and then you're basically transferring an entire page or chapter or textbook into these weird little images and scenes that are going on in your head and you don't need to check your notes which doesn't generally help anyway you don't need to recheck a textbook which generally doesn't increase your memory of the topic either but you're synthesizing it in a way that's personalized to you and uh, and increases your long-term retention significantly more than many other techniques that students currently implement. Sure, sure. On the mnemonic side, what what's give us like an example of of a medical one that that you guys use like you've used the most, just as an example. Sure. And I want to clarify that I stress visual mnemonics. A lot of people use acronyms, and those are, in my opinion, extremely poor mnemonics. They, uh, especially if you're using someone else's, it's just not personalized. It's not generally going to stick. If anyone has used these uh, acronyms in the past, you probably noticed that you only remember like the raunchy ones and anything else you're not going to remember. And, and that's perfectly understandable because our memories do work better for the things that are uh, more unique. So often we'll recommend use something that's violent, use something that's raunchy, use something that's going to stand out because if you make a boring mnemonic, it's probably going to be no better than not creating it. But let's see. Um, one I just created not too, too long ago at this, well, maybe a couple months at this point, I don't remember when I created it, but uh, for instance, uh, trying to remember different brain tumors that are associated with different classes. So for medical students, there are about five, six, seven brain tumors that are more common in adults, and then another grouping that is more common for uh, the pediatric population. And remembering First off, the name, what a lot of them kind of sound similar, and then differentiation based on histology, which is a bunch of pretty much arbitrary terms to us that are not pathologists and not experts on what's what there. It's difficult to remember which one goes in which category. So let's see. This one started off with, I'm going to tell the whole visual scene, and then I'll go back and explain it. So it's probably not going to make sense at first, but it starts off with a knight and he is cutting down a rose and the rose then bleeds this purple or uh, blue kind of nectar starts dripping from it. He goes over to a pile of cell phones and he sets the rose on the pile of cell phones from the bottom of the pile of cell phones. These like vine like tentacles come up and they grab that rose and they pull it into the pile and next to this pile of cell phones have two characters i use a lot of tv and movie references because that's what makes sense to me have uh sean and gus which are the characters from the show psych and sean is holding a pineapple and gus is sitting by a grill frying up eggs 
And then you can kind of see in the background, I can visualize this in my mind, behind them, there's a weird pen. It's like a pig pen, but inside the pen aren't pigs. There are a bunch of women and they're knitting. I don't know why. They're knitting these um, kind of rose like, uh, what would I call it? Like a rose handkerchief you could picture, or they're creating pens and attaching flowers to them. It's actually something my mom used to do, so that was kind of personal to me. But either way, this pen of mothers are creating these plants, uh, creations, kind of like crafts, arts and crafts. And then sitting next to the pen, I see this gigantic skull, thinking like King Kong-sized skull. And inside the nose are two carrots, and inside the eye sockets are two frozen pigs. All right, so what does all of this craziness mean? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm intrigued. So, <laughs> <laughs> This is a, a mnemonic I made for, uh, this was the pediatric brain tumors, I believe. Yes. Um, so the first one, medulloblastoma, and on histology has rosen. Uh, has rosettes so the knight represents medieval uh, medieval knight was a kind of the first thing that came to mind when i heard medulo so i transferred medulo blastoma into this medieval scene this medieval character and the associations are going to sound very loose to anyone listening and that's perfectly fine it's whatever pops into your mind first and that's what popped into my mind and that's why he's cutting down this rose those are the uh, the rosettes that can be seen on histology. And there are sometimes blue cells seen on histology. That's why it's dripping this blue nectar. I knew there was a cell, but I needed a way to remember that there are like blue cells versus maybe clear cells that are seen on other tumors under histology. So it's a different shading factor there. He sets the rose onto a pile of cell phones. Well, pile of cells kind of translates into pilocytic so a pilocytic brain tumor, and then these uh, um, the vines that pop out, and these are the spindle-like fibers that can be seen on histology. Again, thin associations maybe to someone listening, but that's what popped into my mind first, and it's really weird and it stands out. And I was familiar enough with the material to kind of understand, like almost like if I had a list in front of me, I would know probably what went with what but trying to recall it is different than trying to recognize it. So this allows me to recognize it too. Anyway, the next part of the scene is uh, Sean and Gus. Well, uh, it's a comedy skit and Sean always has a pineapple in every episode of the show, or there's a hidden pineapple in every episode of the show for big fans of the show. Psych, you might know that. So it was just a, again, a personal association. So this pineapple reminds me of pinealoma, and what's seen on the pinealoma and histology is this kind of fried egg appearance, which is why his partner is frying eggs on a grill right next to him. In the back of the scene is the pen, the pig pen of moms. And this is appendomoma because, you know, moma, mama kind of sounded similar. So appendomoma. And they're working on these, these fake arts and craft things. They're not real roses like the knight that was cutting down a real rose they're they're kind of fake roses in these arts and crafts and that's the pseudo rosette and then the last one was the big skull so that just reminded me of cranial so cranial pharyngioma 
And if you're familiar with different topics, like the, I didn't need a whole long set of mnemonics for cranial pharyngioma. I could just remember that cranium. Okay, that's going to remind me based on the list that I'm working with, based on the association that I know it's uh, you know, a brain tumor in the pediatric pro- population. I can pick that one out. And it has the, the carrots and the frozen pig. Um, and that reminds me that there can be keratin seen on histology, and the uh, frozen pigs reminds me of cholesterol crystals. So <laughs> we have this really weird scene, but once you've created this, and it is slow at first, and you can become faster with practice, now you can recall this entire scene in a split second in your head. Obviously, it takes me 5-10 minutes to explain it. But I can recall this entire scene in probably a half a second in my head. Now I have that entire table memorized. And, uh, you know, for the most part, I'm not going to forget those again. I'm not going to mix them up with each other like I would have previously just seeing a text-based table or chart. Right, right. That's pretty mind-blowing almost. Because, I mean, I I think that it's really important to note that I, I definitely want to learn more about this, whether that's obviously just talking to you more, just learning, just reading your book and podcasts and everything, but that I think some of us think that a mnemonic is just a simple, you know, list of words that, you know, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, you take the first initial or the first letter of some type of term you're trying to remember and you try to make a silly sentence out of it. But it, 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 in your scenario, in this, this specific example, it's a really in-depth kind of intricate, weird, you know, story that you've created um but like you said in the you know a few minutes ago the weirder it is the raunchier the 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 more memorable you know more or less the easier it's going to be to obviously remember so that that's super cool yeah most definitely and obviously the ones that are really raunchy you don't necessarily want to share with other people so you can (laughs) keep any of these to yourself that you do make but i kind of had the initial impression too i first learned about some of these mnemonics right before med school i was trying to learn everything i could about learning before i got there because i knew it would be useful but i didn't really catch on i tried it for a week or two i think i converted a couple of phone numbers into visuals and then i got stuck and There wasn't a lot of materials back then to turn to, to learn where to go next. So I did not utilize this. I didn't know how to during med school. And I just really picked it up again towards like the end of my third year, beginning of my fourth year. And that's when I was hitting a lot of roadblocks. I'm like, well, I got nothing left to lose at this point. I need to do something. I need to make some change. And I started researching it and I started reaching out to people that taught some courses online from some of the materials I could find, some of the podcasts I found, like the uh, uh, Magnetic Memory Method with Anthony Mativier. Uh, the Super Learners course with Jonathan Levy, uh, both of them and and several uh, other memory champions. Uh, there is a world memory champion and a United States memory champion, a few other countries. Some of them have been guests on my show too. And through that, I've learned so much more and have uh, really taken the the different tips from memory champions and how they use them. And then tips from Uh, mnemonics instructors and how they try to teach their students. And they're very, very different sometimes. So learning about both sides of this world and starting to implement it specifically for very complex material like medical school has been fascinating. And it's a slow process at first. It does take a lot of time and effort initially, but 
it saves you so much time down the road because you're not going to relearn the same thing again in a couple of weeks and a couple of months and then again in two years before your board exam or whatever it might be. So in the end, it, it definitely right. helps. <laughs> That's amazing. Great. Um, yeah, I mean, everything that you, you've mentioned, uh, you know, and I can imagine just everything else that's in your toolbox, um, I think would, would overlap perfectly with, uh, you know, with the vet school community too. So, um, yeah, well, good. Then, you know, as we're, you know, getting close to time, I definitely wanted to touch on kind of some overall big keys to success that you've, you've learned just through your trials and tribulations or from, learning from other people and mentors, some, some keys for success, uh, in medical school, um, whether that is the learning side, the, the not learning side, the social side, soft skills, anything at all. Um, what are some things that come to your mind? So the first couple of things that come to mind, uh, I would say the first one is just going back to that planning. You prioritize to a degree uh, through some of the tools we explained earlier, but you need to have an overall plan. You need to know where you're going and you need to know how to get there. And sometimes that how to get there is very, very difficult to find out. But by proper planning and proper preparation, you will ultimately save so much time. And there's actually another quick technique that uh, goes into planning called WHOOP, Wish Outcome Obstacle Plan. And just to summarize, it's saying don't just make a plan, but know where you might fail, know where some of the obstacles might arise, and then plan for that failure. So then when it inevitably does happen, because we're all going to fail multiple times, and that's perfectly fine, but having a plan in place for when that failure happens, it means when it happens, you're not going to freak out, decrease the cortisol level, and you can just get back going on with whatever you're doing. Uh, another one is the self-monitoring, and this is very difficult. I've really not heard too much from, from any of the resources that I've studied over the past year or so uh, for self-monitoring, for knowing where your mistakes are coming from. If you utilize like a third-party question bank for board exams or something like that, it'll say what category you might be getting questions wrong in. You might know from your courses and your quizzes what categories of uh, or which courses you're having the most difficulty with. But sometimes our metacognition about it is very weak. We don't know what's going on inside or how to correct that. And we do have a method called the Med Edge method. <laughs> it was just a catchy name. We go over in the book and I cover a little bit in the podcast. Um, I would need a, another episode to go over everything here, but um, that's a, a, a potential way to self-monitor and to find out, are you making issues with the diagnosis of the disease? Are you making issues with the treatment of the disease? Did you know the information correctly, but you applied it incorrectly? Or are you making test-taking issues? Are you, uh, you know, honing in on the wrong parts of the question, therefore leading to the wrong answer? You would have had it right if you understood the question right, but you didn't do it that way. And there's about a dozen of those that we focus on. Um, and the last one would be mentorship. And luckily, I was able to interview Dr. Anders Ericsson, who's the author of Peak. And it's a very, very good book for anyone that wants to learn about experts. And he's studied the experts. That's where Malcolm Gladwell incorrectly came out with the 10,000 hour rule. And we kind of discussed that in my interview. But in order to actually become an expert, a lot of times you just have to have a mentor. Um, there's only, there's, so much you can do within the given time frame, anyway. 
and finding a mentor that uh, has the same goals as you, that knows where you're at, that can teach you what you need to know to get to the stage that you're looking for, not the stage that they're looking for, the stage you want to get to, uh, can be very useful. So that's uh, another reason why you need to plan very well and know where you're going. Totally. And I think another cool or another thing that um, you know came to mind, which I, I'm sure you've obviously thought of and and relate to to you know, your constituents, but I wanted to also just make a point of is that all of these techniques that you were just mentioning and and some of these keys to success aren't specific to school. Because I mean, all the things you were just saying, I mean, all these light bulbs were going off in my head about, oh, you know, I can really apply that to clinical practice now, um, just in the same way that I uh, that you could apply it to uh, medical school, to college and high school. I mean, it, it does not end, I don't think. Um, so those are really, you know, I think important points to just point out. It really it really made sense to me, you know, both in in, in all these settings, if that makes sense. Exactly. That's why I'm really trying to branch out to other schools, uh, both professionally, but also to like the the pre-med and undergrad classes, because if they learned these techniques sooner, they would struggle so much less when they get to where a lot of the population here, the student audience might be. And then it is just as useful. These can be utilized later on. I have uh, entire episodes on the podcast about how you can utilize these in clinical practice to remember more information about your patients or to remember names and faces, whether that be the patients or their family or the staff or this and that. These are just all around useful because what can't be improved if you can remember better? Right. Absolutely. Then my last question for you is, when do you think is the the most opportune time for us to learn how to learn? Like, when should people, whether they're going into uh, an advanced degree or even just finishing out high school, when should they learn all of these skills? When would it make most sense? Uh, take your age and subtract three. Um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> as soon as possible. The earlier you learn them, the more effect you're going to get from it. Uh, just like any skill. The earlier you develop the skill and the stronger you develop the skill, the more benefit you're ultimately going to receive from it throughout the rest of your lifetime. That skill is going to come up again and again, and even more and more now so because, one, people can't remember anything. They always rely on, on the internet for every kind of answer. So if you have a profession that requires you to know facts, not just be able to look them up, which is still important, but to know information then it's going to be vitally important. And being able to remember it longer term, to remember it quicker than maybe your peers, those are all things that everyone would like to learn how to do. Right. And I was thinking, you know, is this something that we should incorporate into the the first semester of, of medical or veterinary school? Um, I think, of course, yes. But the question then came up in my mind about, well, really, we should be learning it way before medical school. Um you know, what, maybe even before college, you know, I guess just goes back to your point as soon as you can, you know, learn, learn some of these techniques. Yeah, definitely. The sooner, the better. I would love to, uh, unfortunately, I probably have to work backwards here, but I'd love to get into undergrads before they come to a graduate level uh, education, but also high school could be a great way to make some of the more boring topics that students are not innately interested about, they can now use this creative process, make it personal to them and find some intrinsic value in it, which is going to ultimately make them remember it better and do better in the class. Totally. Absolutely. Well, good. Well, I want to learn 
so much more about this. Uh, tell us more about <laughs> all of your projects, uh, where we can find more information, and just continue learning about all this cool stuff. <laughs> I have so many projects going on, but luckily everything can be found at my organization, Free Med Ed. It's uh, freemeded.org. And then on there is a link for the book if you would like it. You can also find it on Amazon, of course. Uh, it's called Read This Before Medical School, but the same material would apply to veterinary school, except for the the exact testing procedure, possibly. Uh, I have tutoring services on there. I have my Medical Anemonist podcast and another one that I host on there. Uh, we also are now doing meetups. So these are like live webinars. You guys can join me trying to do it at least every other week. I'm planning on one around the 24th, but links for all that can be found on the website as well or on all social media if that's easier. But uh, freemeded.org.org, uh, you can find all the information of current projects and future ones as well. Terrific. Well, I know where I'm going to look at, look at all this stuff. This is so good. Um, well, good. Well, uh, I really appreciate the time and all of the uh, the insight and the knowledge. Um, definitely, we'll will try to help spread all of all of this, uh, you know, across the the veterinary space. But uh, you know, I definitely think if you if you had the time and uh, the energy to get to get into the 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 animal side of this whole this whole world, uh, there would be a huge. Uh, huge proposition for you. I think we everyone can use it, but especially uh, us on the veterinary side. So, yeah. um, well, good. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been amazing. No, thank you. I hope everyone enjoyed the content. Very good. All right. Thanks again. Take care. All right. One more huge thank you to Chase DeMarco for joining me on the podcast today. So much awesome advice and pearls on learning and and learning how to learn uh be sure to check out all of chase's projects about him uh his book the podcast resources on his blog um tutoring so much more over at freemeded.org uh tons of resources there all of his information and everything that he can offer to uh, help anyone uh in the medical profession and beyond is there And as always, last but not least, thank you for listening to the Vet School Unleashed podcast. If you'd like this episode of the podcast, please leave us a review. Uh, Reviews are a terrific way to spread the word about the podcast and let me know what you guys like. For resources and more information about the podcast, check us out at www.vetschoolunleashed or find me on Instagram at DrSethTheVet or on Facebook. You can also connect with me via email at seth at vetschoolunleashed.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's episode and any ideas for future topics. Thank you again, and we will talk to you next time on Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM.